Well, good morning. Are we awake this morning? Amen. How many of you went to bed like at 1 a.m.? Yeah, come on, be honest. I, uh, I uh, went to bed at 10.30, slept like a baby. <laughs> I didn't have any skin in the game, so I... <laughs> But uh, what was it, probably 12.30, something like that? I don't know, it was probably late. As soon as I got up this morning and I saw that uh, they had won and it was in overtime, one of the first things that came to my mind is, man, the 9 o'clock service is going to be tired. <laughs> so uh, it's great to see you this morning. Glad you're here. In the late, it was in the 1800s, doctors and scientists uh, believed in something called spontaneous generation. Um, it's this idea that um, living organisms could suddenly pop up anywhere from non-living organisms. And, um, and this was pretty much the way in the 1800s that they explained disease. Um, uh, it, it really was. I, I know today it's... Um, uh, it sounds crazy to us, but in that time, it was how they explained disease, that from out of nowhere, disease could just occur, and um, it could pop up on a skin or in a person's body, and uh, uh, they would watch it sweep through communities and families and parts of cities and kill thousands, and yet they just attributed it to this idea of spontaneous generation. Um, they, 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 they thought it was random. Um, there's even talk about it being providential. In some cases, they, they talked about it being God's will, the reason why all of a sudden disease would pop up somewhere and people would suffer and die. And, and there, there just was no investigation into how to determine how these diseases were related or how they were, how they were transmitted because it was just assumed that out of a non-living organism could suddenly, a non-living organism could suddenly produce a sort of living organism that would turn into a disease. Then there was a guy that came along, his name was uh, Louis Pasteur. And he said, no, he said, guys, this isn't, this isn't the case at all. He said that there are invisible organisms that you cannot see that actually are carrying these diseases. Uh, they can be carried by the wind. They can be passed by touching someone's skin. They can live in food. They can live on different surfaces. And that these diseases that they were experiencing were not just cropping up randomly from non-living organisms, but they were actually invisible organisms, an invisible world that was impacting the visible world. And you know, it is what he, he began to, den, de, uh, to framework this idea of the germ theory of disease. Now, when I'm saying this to you today, you're looking at me and like, okay, duh. I know all this. You're not telling me anything new, right? We're very familiar with this idea of germs. And we probably have sanitizer even in this uh, room somewhere, right? Um, we have soap dispensers. We have all that stuff because we're very familiar with this idea of the transmission of germs of a invisible world of microorganisms uh, so tiny, but yet they carry a lot of weight and they do infect or influence the visible world, right? I get sick and I don't even see what makes me sick, right? 
And they didn't get that then. And it was only until Pasteur began to push this forward. And, and actually, it, they say in that day that the people around Pasteur began to buy into it. And they began to do things like wash their hands. They began to do things like uh, make sure they quarantined people and separated people away. But for the most part, these were the words that were said by many in the medical community, in the scientific community, and then throughout the, the world at large. You're telling us that there's something we can't see that impacts what we can see. You're telling us that there's something that's invisible that can float through the air, land on food, infect food. That something you can't see can infect me and infect me and it can be transmitted from me. They totally rejected it. Wouldn't believe it. And... Um, that sounds crazy to us, but that was where they were at then. You know, as crazy as that sounds, I, I believe that we live in a, in a world that by and large has the same kind of posture as those scientists back then when it comes to spiritual truth and spiritual reality. We literally, as a world, look at certain things and say, you know what, I just cannot believe that living by certain principles or things that you cannot see or living by faith uh, in something that you cannot see, I cannot see how in the world that that makes any kind of difference in my life. If I can't see it, touch it, feel it, experience it, if I can't observe it, then it cannot be reality or it, could not, it should not be reality. And again, we are stuck. We are stuck as a world in this spiritual conundrum that I think mirrors their, their conundrum back then with disease and germs. And they, they couldn't see it, so they didn't believe that it was reality. And so this, uh, this, this series, these four weeks, we're just looking at this, really we're focusing on this, this ish word, um, I shared last week, I began to notice maybe it was a few years ago that we use this word a lot, don't we? I, I caught myself even using it. Like, I'm going to tell somebody I, I'm going to be somewhere. And, and so, a way to make it so I wasn't nailed down to a time, I would just say I'll be there, you know, 7.30-ish. Uh, and, you know, I began to think about that. We just use this word. It's even in television shows now, the names of television shows. And it's ish. It's like, it's like a jello word. You cannot nail it down. And um, I just began to think, you know what, that is, that's a, a symptomatic of our, of our world that we live in. We live in an ish world. Everything relevant, nothing objective. Don't nail me down. Don't, uh, absolute is something I'm really not comfortable with. Just make it so it's just kind of relative. I just fit in and, and find my place. And I would say that this kind of ish world that we live in is so similar to the disease that they wrestled with a, hundred, a couple hundred years ago. It impacted them, it changed them, but they couldn't see that the reason why was because of this uns, these unseen germs. And I would say that our ish world is so impacted and is so, can I say, sick, and I, I don't mean that in a bad way, but we're sick, we have a problem, we need some help, we need, we need um, a cure, so to speak. 
And this, rel- this relative-ish kind of world, it's, it's just like a disease. It's eating away at, at us. I would remind you that what you believe determines how you behave. What you believe will determine how you behave. Um, again, I, I can't emphasize that enough. Enough. I hope that you you wrestle with that, and and it causes you that statement just causes you to begin to think about well, what do I really believe, or my behavior patterns, especially the ones that trouble me, or I wonder about, or I just seem to come back to, and I wrestle with, and I'm frustrated with myself with what are my behavior patterns? What are my behavior patterns coming back and telling me what do I really believe about this? And um, because it is so true, what you believe will determine how you behave. We've noticed in the book of John, I tried to fly through that, or I went through that last, last week. I just want to again touch on it again, just kind of quickly. But in, uh, we've seen this idea presented in the, in the book of John. John presents a lot of different themes. Well, really one that he's trying to, uh, what was it, John 20, 31. I, I've written this book to, to convince you that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, he, is the, he is the Christ. But throughout his book, he has so many different cool themes. And one of these themes is the, in this word truth. I mean, we're introduced to Jesus right off the bat. He, he's come, we've seen his glory. It's the glory of the one and only Son. He came from the Father and he's full of what? He's full of grace and truth. In fact, Jesus will then identify himself later on in John chapter 14 as the way and the truth and the life. And as this theme carries through in different ways through John, he also said, he, he helps us to realize that in John chapter 8, he, he says in verse 31, he says things like, if you follow my teaching, then he says in verse 32, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so Jesus is presenting to us that in him is truth. He is actually the embodiment of truth. And it's what we said last week that truth is not simply a what, it's a who. If I want to understand the truth that Jesus has revealed, I simply look at the way he lived his life out. And uh, sure, truth is involved in statements and what's, but really that was all balled up into a who, and that is Jesus Christ. But we see that as he is presenting himself, as he is sharing the truth, as he is showing us what that means, full of grace and truth, that also he shows us in the book of John that there is another dynamic going on in our world. That's John eight forty four. He tells them, the, the, the religious leaders of that day, as he really messing with their minds because they, you know, they're from Abraham and that's their heritage. He says, no, not really. You are of your father, the devil. And he really then begins to characterize all of us um, separate from God. Our fatherhood comes from the enemy, the prince of the power of this there, the controller, of the, the, the one who controls this, this world right now in, in many ways. And we are, we are considered his children without Jesus Christ. And he says this, you belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out his desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to what? The truth, for there is no truth in him. Jesus over here, embodiment, everything. I'm the truth. Look at me. The devil, he has nothing to do with this. In fact, when he lies, 
He speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have the enemy of our soul, the devil, who is a deceiver, whose mission, John, remember, to rob, steal, kill, destroy, to, just, to, to, to crush us is his, is his objective. And one of the ways he carries that out is through deception, through lies. His very mission, as we even saw in the garden, is to sow lies into the world about God, his nature, his character, his goodness, his love, his truth. And he's doing that so effectively. Um, I wish there was a, a form where we could talk about how the systems of this world, even the things that we live as a part of, so often have been sown on the lies of the enemy. And the way that our world runs is not a kingdom way. And, um, and, and so often we end up living in those systems because that's where we're at. And, and yet we're trying to live a different kingdom. But we, we, we are impacted by the lies of Satan. And he's done that especially through, through two things. Um, relativism, uh, the assumption that there is no such thing as absolute truth. He's begun to sow this lie for the last couple hundred years especially as, uh, as our minds have been open to that more and more as a society as we've tried to, you know, ponder and open our minds to uh, this has really started to take root. Until now, it's amazing how it's just a common uh, belief in our culture. It's a common belief even uh, sometimes in uh, evangelical circles. There is no truth. Truth is evolving. Truth is not constant. And he's also sowing in the lie of subjectivism. This idea that I have the right to determine what is right and wrong without submitting my, my judgment to any authority outside of myself. And so... With that being said, we looked at one truish statement last week because we found that the enemy, the deceiver, as the scriptures share, uh, sometimes he comes as a roaring lion, absolutely, but often, more often, and it seems like through scripture, more consistently he comes as an angel of light. And what he wants to do as an angel of light is he wants to take true things about God and he wants to distort them because ultimately he wants us to begin down a track that has some truth to it so we buy into it, but yet it's leading us, like Proverbs says, that, you know, there's a way that looks right to man, but its end leads to destruction. Am I, uh, am I good? Okay, I just feel like I'm like a clock up here right now. I'm good. That's not you, that's me. I can tell you're listening, but am I, anyway, uh, I'm kind of worried about today. I don't feel like I'm like ready so um, maybe a little bit but um so last week we looked at one of those things that has been sown uh into our relative subjective world um it's this idea of sincerity is enough sincerity is enough um it's this whole idea that if you're sincere god understands your heart and uh, he's good with that if you're sincere and we would say you know what there's some truth to the statement that sincerity is important Absolutely, God calls for us to be of a sincere heart. He calls us in a sincere relationship with him. But there is, there, there is more to, there is a true statement beyond just the statement, the truest statement, that sincerity is enough. And I would say that sincerity is necessary, but it's not sufficient. 
Sincerity is necessary, but it doesn't, it doesn't create a sufficiency in my life that connects me to God. It's necessary to go to him, but it's not sufficient to meet with him, to be with him, to be in a relationship. My sincerity then is only resting in and trusting on the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so in our culture where, hey, all roads lead to God, he was a good moral person, all this good jazz that you all hear, right? Um, I hope you don't say. <laughs> but you all hear, it, it's, 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 it's a lie that's being sown. It's a, true, it's a truism, a truish. Yes, God wants, he makes good people. Yes, God makes moral people. Yes, God, but yet... Um, uh, that our sincerity is not what merits any kind of, of approval or favor or relationship from God. Our sincerity rests completely on the saving work of Jesus Christ. And that's what creates us different than the systems of this world is we are humble and, and broken and, real, and realizing that I can't, he can, all those phrases that I use. Um, and so that's truism number one I want to talk about. The second one is I want to talk about this truest statement today. And uh, I know as soon as I say it, you're going to be like, oh, God wants me to be happy. Now what's wrong with that statement, right? God wants me to be happy. Amen. I'm on board. Now I know you're saying, oh, come on, Chip. What are you going to tell me about this? It's not true. Well, listen to me. Listen to this. And I, I'm appreciative to uh, Craig Rochelle uh, in this, uh, this area. He does a great job fleshing some of this stuff out. So I've leaned on him a lot. We serve such a good and loving God. And because God loves so much, and Scripture says that God has plans to bless us and to prosper us, then God is, he, he's got, he has plans to give us a future and a hope. And the reality is that God delights in our happiness and that God wants us to enjoy our life. And because God is so good, the bottom line for God is that we are happy. Don't raise your hand if you believe that statement. Listen to that statement. Sounds, sounds like something I'm on board with, right? I mean, Jeremiah 29, 11, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you future and a hope. Um, we, we, we take these things. Now, I'm not, I don't want to burst your bubble here, but we take that verse out of context, okay? Um, although the principle remains that God is that way, that promise really wasn't to us. Um, I like that verse, I lean on that verse at times, but really the, the immediate context was to the children of Israel, right? Um, but th what I'm trying to say is we take stuff like this, we rip out of verses, we have these verses, like uh, I, I know maybe you don't do this much, but I know a lot of people, you may ask anything from me in my name, and I will do it. And we, we create this, this world that, is, that has been created in our culture that it, it really all of Scripture is pointing toward one thing. And that one thing is God really wants me to be happy. 
This sounds good, right? True, right? But I tell you that that statement is not completely true. Listen to me. It is true that God is a good God. It is true that God loves you. It is true that God wants to bless you. And it is true that God has great plans for you. But when we start to believe that under these truths, that the bottom line for us is our happiness, it radically changes our position with God. Because as we look at scripture, God is God. We are here to serve him and to glorify him. But when we believe that the bottom line is that God wants us to be happy, it reverses the role. And instead of us serving God, it makes God our servant. In effect, we reduce God to a cosmic Coke machine. If we do what we're supposed to, if we put the money in, press the button, say the right prayer, then God has got to produce whatever we ask for us to make us happy. And so, one day, when we're not happy, it leaves us with the logical conclusion, if God wants me happy, and I'm not, then God failed. Which is honestly what a lot of people believe today. I don't know how many people I've talked to who really, their issue comes down to, they, they don't understand why God hasn't come through for them. God's failed them in some way. And it's born out of this logic, this belief that God wants, at the bottom line, is that God wants to make me happy. I mean, you can turn on any talk show, or you can turn on a lot of talk shows. I'm not going to say any talk show. But uh, you can turn on talk shows, and you hear about how you can be happy. Amazon.com, you'll find over 10,000 books with the word happy in the title because we are bombarded and uh, with this idea that we deserve that the end goal, the bottom line is for us to be happy. And we've created a God whose bottom, why do I keep saying bottom line? I'm sorry, I'll say something else. Whose end result is to make us happy. You see, with the beliefs of, of relativism and subjectivism, it kind of goes, like, goes like this. Our world is without the belief in absolute truth. Truth is defined by whatever makes me happy, which leads me to then believe that <clears throat> the bottom line is my happiness. And then that leads to the, the idea that happiness becomes the standard by which I judge my actions. If my wife isn't making me happy, and there's another girl at work who makes me happy, then whatever I do is justified because the bottom line is my happiness. If I believe that more money and more things will make me happy, and then however I pursue more money and more things, whether it is right or wrong, whether you think it's wrong, it's it's. It's not wrong to me because the bottom line for me is happiness. Happiness allows me to justify whatever I do in pursuit of happiness because that is the bottom line. I mean, Sheryl Crow even sang the song, right? If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad, right? I'm dating myself there, 1990s. I'm really old, right, Sheryl Crow? You see how this works? 
And I'm sure I'm talking to a lot of people who have already seen through this lie, even though I will tell you, this lie lives uh, in so many places. Yet, I still, still want to emphasize to us that it is a truish statement to say that God wants to make me happy. Because sometimes, maybe even for you inadvertently, it begins to create in our minds the expectation that God is on the hook for our happiness. That that's, that's his whole role is to make me and you happy. Now, is that encouraging enough for you this morning? Not really, right? But I think it's important for us to grab a hold of. And I would simply leave you with this. The scriptures teach a little, it teaches a different slant. God doesn't want you happy when it causes you to do something sinful or unwise. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. Just as he who is who has called you as holy, so be holy in all that you do. So if we're going to try to figure out this, this phrase, God wants to make me happy, and we realize that it's been turned around so much, well, what do the scriptures kind of, what do they interject into this? Well, I would tell you, first of all, I can guarantee you that God doesn't want you happy when it causes you to be sinful, to do something sinful or unwise. I would say, secondly, God doesn't, make, doesn't want you happy when it is based on things in this world. Now, let me, let me talk, for about, talk about that for a minute. Because 1 John says this, right? Do not love the world or anything that's in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires do what? Pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now, if you grew up like me, this verse, verses like this, like kind of created in your mind this idea that the world was bad. That really trees somehow were inherently bad. Or that, you know, again, a proper understanding of the world, the word world there. But the idea is God doesn't want you happy when it is based only on the things in this world. And the world becomes something that separates us from God when it takes over his rightful place in our life. Right? Remember what Romans says? That they worship the creation rather than the creator. God gave the creation as a good thing for us to enjoy, correct? But so often what we do, or I would say every time what we do in our sinful fallen condition, is we take the things of this world and we put them in a place that is only reserved for God alone. And he's not thrilled about that. He's not wanting to make you happy when you're taking things that he's created and you're putting them uh, above his rightful place, right? I would say the third thing that we need to understand from scripture is this. God wants something better than happiness in our lives. 
He wants you to be blessed. There's something better than happiness. It's blessing. Psalms, blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. You see, I think we should be saying, instead of God wants me to be happy, truest statement, yeah, God, I, I think you know that I'm affirming that God delights in our happiness. He, but I think we should say God wants me to be blessed because it carries a whole different connotation. Because blessed finds its, finds its complete meaning in this little phrase. Instead of God wants me to be happy, I would say this, God wants you to be his. Instead of God wants me to be happy, God wants you to be his. Because in him, there is this thing called blessing. And this brings about the kind of life that is full of security. In this crazy world, I know who I am. I know who I belong to. I know that there is nothing that can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm blessed. I'm secure. I find significance. God has created me in his image. He has designed me. I am his workmanship. I am crafted in such a way that he can use me in a, in a special, unique setting. I'm blessed. And out of that spills everything else. Wow, I have a flat tire on the way to work. <laughs> Emotionally, I am not very happy now. Right? If I am truly buying into this that God wants me to be happy and he does everything, then there's going to come along enough flat tires or enough maintenance issues or enough things here and there that I am going to then begin to question, God, you really don't care about me. You're really not good. You're really not who you say you are. Because if I believe that really the bottom line is God wants to make me happy, then I, I'm not happy. And so I'm, but if I'm blessed... I realize, listen, who I am as a child of God, these things are simply blips on the radar screen of what he's doing with my life and what he has planned for me and even the eternal significance of who I am in him. Amen? I live blessed. And you know what? Thank you, Lord, for blessing me. And we all... We all, in some ways, I mean, we absolutely have, have experienced the blessings that this world can produce in material goods and in comfort and so many things. And God, I thank you for those blessings. I'm blessed today. But I don't find my happiness in those things. I find my blessing and happiness in the giver of those things. And if those things leave tomorrow, guess what I still am? I'm blessed. And you know what? I've seen, I haven't been there because I'm still pretty soft. <laughs> I've had it pretty good. But I've seen those ones that have walked through really difficult, dark, troubling, trying waters. And you know what? They also have testified that they're happy. Because they're happy in Jesus Christ. They found the source. 
That's, that's the true statement. God wants you to be his. God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be his. Because in being his, you will find something that's greater than happiness. And that is blessing. Absolutely. Out of that flows a lot of happiness. Haven't you experienced that? I mean, I would say that uh, I, I really have experienced a deeper level of happiness since I've ordered my life to be directed by the Lord. I've, I've, I've missed some of, the, some of the, 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 the chaos and catastrophe and crises I could have, I know I would have created. And the harm, the hurt, the, all that stuff. So just in following him has created a happiness of, of so many things. But see, the idea is, let's not buy in to what is, I believe, a subtle lie more and more and more. That, well, God wants me to be happy. God exists to make me happy. No. God wants you to be his. God wants you to be his. And in being his, you are blessed, which is a greater thing than happiness. And flowing out of blessing will come happiness. Amen? Let's pray. Let's stand this morning. Father, Lord, just line upon line, precept upon precept, Lord, we just come and teach on Sundays, Lord, just believing that you just continue to open our hearts and minds. And Lord, you do that to me every week. I thank you for that. And I'm just trying to uh, share uh, what you direct me to, Lord, and then what you're showing me or what needs to be shown. And not that I'm some great thing or not at all. But Lord, we truly believe that in this invisible thing of me talking about truths and stories and the word of God, that as we think about your word and your truth, that as we commit to it, as we affirm it in our heart and mind, that week upon week and year upon year, you continue to work and change and move in us. And we become more and more into your image. And so, Lord, help us just to see these things. There's so many other things out there, but there's just four that we want to highlight this month. Lord, just help us to, to be aware, to understand we have an adversary who is, who is not just coming at us as a roaring lion, but he's also coming at us as a deceiver. And he wants us to maybe buy into half-truths or truths that are distorted, Lord, that ultimately, ultimately, Cause us to not see you as who you really are and to doubt your goodness and your love and your ability and your power. And Lord, we want to say today, we're not people who just think that you're here to make us happy. We know that we're here because you want us to be yours. And in being yours, we become blessed. <laughs> and that blessing flows out far more than just happiness. So Lord, continue to work in our hearts and minds. My prayer is that you would just speak to each one uh, in this matter of Jesus is truth. The enemy is, li is lying. What, wh is there things in my life that need just the truth of God to be uh, committed to and seen, Lord? Go with us from this place. Help us to have a great day, Lord, I pray, and then a wonderful week for each one. In Jesus' name, amen.